You may have guessed from our children's sermon today that um, we're going to be talking about what it means to be saints. And the word saint in Greek is hagios. And uh, like think of the Hagia Sophia, the shrine of holy wisdom in the Eastern Orthodox Church, or if you've ever heard the word hagiography, that's, that's a, a genre of literature where you write um, books about heroes of the faith. Um, and uh, so hagios means holy one or, or separate or set apart from the world in order to reflect God's nature and priorities. And in Acts 9, we learn four things about what it means to be saints. Number one, that all members of the church are saints. Number two, that not all saints look the same. Number three, saints are meant to multiply. And number four, saints are holy because they are united to Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Now let's dive into point one. All members of the church are saints. And I'd be grateful if you turn with me to Acts chapter 9. What page is that? I think it's 917 and 918. That's right. And um, rather than reading this passage straight through, it's, it's kind of an episodic chapter. It kind of goes from one little mini-story to one little mini-story. Rather than reading it straight through, because we're, this is kind of a, a topical sermon on one passage of Scripture, we're going to be jumping around a bit, so I'd be grateful if you left your Bibles open. Now, you may already know that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the temple was set aside for a holy purpose. Priests were set aside for a holy purpose. They were hagios. And in Exodus 19.6, it says that all Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're set aside by God to reveal his glory to the world. Well, in the New Testament, this concept of sainthood is opened up. It's extended to all members of church, regardless of title or ethnicity. All people have an opportunity to be saints by faith in Jesus Christ. So, for example, look with me down at Acts 9, verse 32. It says that Peter came down also to the saints in Lydda. Now, these people weren't necessarily any more saintly than the believers in Jerusalem or Samaria, but they're called saints. And similarly, a few verses later, um, when Paul heals Tabitha in the city of Joppa, it says in verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And there again, the word saint is used, really just as a synonym for regular believer or just for a disciple which is also one of Luke's favorite words for a Christian. But we're not really used to thinking of the word saint in that way, are we? That's not usually the way we think it. So if we come from like a high church background, uh, we tend to think of a saint as someone who's been officially canonized by the church, right? Like St. Benedict or St. Teresa of Calcutta. Um, or we may use the term in a more colloquial way to describe somebody whose faith we admire. We might say, and that woman who adopted all those children, she's a saint. I couldn't do that. She's a saint. And, uh, and those uses of the word saint, I think, are fine as far as it goes, but it's not the way the New Testament uses it. In the New Testament, everyone who believes in Christ, every member of the church, is considered a saint. You are a saint if you believe in Jesus. And I think that kind of makes us squirm a little bit, doesn't it? So let me ask you, if someone said to you, you're a holy man. You're a holy woman. You're pious. You're godly. You're a saint. 
How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel a little uncomfortable? I think part of what's going on here is we live in such a cynical age where all our heroes and, and best intentions has, has been constantly deconstructed and, uh, and to the point where we become uncomfortable desiring even to be godly. But listen what God says about his people. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Jesus himself says in our gospel reading today, you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world. And indeed, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Even people like Saul, who have a scandalous past. And there's people in this church, there's always people who have a very scandalous past. But even people like him could become an instrument of God's grace to the world. Even people like him could be a saint. I think a lot of times we have aversion to the word saint because it implicitly places an identity on us that we are uncomfortable with. So some of us will say to ourselves, well, I'm just trying to be like an ordinary Christian. I'm not trying to be like a saint or something. But if in God's eyes we are holy ones, set apart from the world to reflect his nature and priorities, then that means we are responsible to live into that identity. Amen? Amen. And to the extent that we're resistant to that, we're being unfaithful. Because it's God's word that should shape our reality. Not the way of the world shaping the way that we are or are not comfortable looking at ourselves. So that's the first point. All members of the church are saints. But it's important that we also understand point number two, that not all saints are the same. So Christians should not be just some kind of like flavorless, what would Jesus do robots that have like the same like saintly, tranquil personality. This is not true of canonized saints, the saints like St. Saint Francis of Assisi, who is this like free-spirited extrovert, and um, Jerome, who was this like reclusive curmudgeon grump who was an amazing scholar, they couldn't be more different from each other. But it's also true of disciples in general. Not all saints are the same. They come in all shapes and sizes. We all have our own unique, unique gifts and strengths and calling. In fact, if we have eyes to see it, Acts 9 illustrates this truth better than almost any chapter in Scripture. Because in this chapter we meet a missionary apostle, an everyday charismatic, an encourager, a proto-bishop, and a woman of charity, just to name a few. And so we're going to actually look at a brief sketch of each of these. And as we do, I want you to just kind of listen and, and, and see if you can see yourself maybe in some of these other saints. Or, or, or maybe you see some other Christian that you know in these sketches. So to start with, we meet Saul, the missionary apostle. Now Saul was a tent maker, he was a scholar, he was this zealously devoted religious man. And he was a missionary almost without equal in the history of the church. And his story was a living example of the gospel. This man who formerly persecuted the church is now set aside by Jesus for a holy purpose, to be an instrument of his grace. In fact, twice in this passage, the very churches that he used to persecute are now working to save his skin. Right? So in Damascus... He's saved by being lowered by the saints in a basket from the wall. 
And then later on in Jerusalem, where he had been a part of the martyrdom of Stephen, they save his butt by ship by, you know, let's move him to Caesarea, let's ship him back to Tarsus, because this guy's about to die. Right? I mean, the church that was persecuted by him is now protecting him, which is just an amazing story of grace if you think about it. But alongside this big shot that we all know, Saul or Paul, you have this everyday charismatic named Ananias. And I'm just going to back up a little bit uh, into, into some of the text that John covered last, last week, earlier on in Acts 9. So through Ananias, we really learn that there's no such thing as actually an ordinary Christian. Because he's not a, an apostle, or a pastor, or a deacon. And yet we see in verse 10, he receives a direct vision from Jesus Christ. And he, he responds obediently, doesn't he? He says, here I am, Lord. Here I am. The Lord calls to him. He says, here I am. Which is the way that the prophets would respond to the Lord in the Old Testament. And, and then the Lord tells him the shocking news that through the laying on of Ananias' hands, Saul is going to be healed. The great apostle is going to be healed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Through the laying on of Ananias' hands. Verses 17 and 18 says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. It's an incredible story. I have a question. Have any of you ever experienced God working in a miraculous way through the laying on of your hands? I actually know that some of you have. <laughs> actually, some of the people who are on our like every Sunday prayer team have seen God work in that sort of way. So maybe you want to take advantage of that ministry during communion. Um, you know, uh, the only time I ever received instantaneous physical healing, I've been prayed for for physical healing many times, didn't receive physical healing. I don't know why. All right? But the only time that I ever received instantaneous physical healing was when a child laid their hands on my injured wrist and prayed for me. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I was healed instantly. I mean, it was, it was this weird experience because I felt something like cold electricity surrounding this whole region of me. And it's like I could feel myself being healed. And I'm like, I've read about this sort of thing. Like, I've like, seen testimonies on YouTube. But this is like for real happening. Listen, friends, God can use anybody. So we have Ananias, this everyday charismatic, this regular disciple who sees visions of Jesus and lays hands on people and heals them and fills them with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. It even appears in this case that Ananias was responsible for Saul's baptism, doesn't it? And to this day, the Anglican Church and even the Roman Catholic Church will accept somebody being baptized by a layperson. As long as they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As long as it's a Christian baptism, they'll actually accept that. It's not uh, their preference, but under certain, certain circumstances, it's not discouraged. It's kind of an incredible thing, and it's rooted in Ananias' interaction with Saul. Okay, so reading down a bit further, we hear about Barnabas, the encourager. And uh, we've already met Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, where we learned that he was a Levite. And he was actually a wealthy man who was extraordinarily generous to the early church. Along with Paul, he was one of the first Christian missionaries 
Um, and he was respected a great deal by the apostles in Jerusalem, so much so that when the church in Jerusalem was like skeptical of Saul, did you see that in verses 26 and 27? They're skeptical. They're like, I don't know if this guy's the real deal. It's Barnabas who advocated for him in order to win their trust. So the result of this in verse 28 is that Paul was able to, quote, go in and out among them in Jerusalem. And this former persecutor was received by Jerusalem as a minister of the gospel. It's pretty incredible. Can you imagine how different Christian history would have been if the 12 apostles in Jerusalem had not received and been in fellowship with the apostle Paul? But it might not have happened if it was not for Barnabas. Barnabas was the encourager. He encouraged through generous giving. He, he encouraged through uh, vocal advocacy, right? And he was really the first wingman in, in missionary history. Do any of you have the spiritual gift of encouragement? If so, I encourage you to use it liberally because there's almost nothing, there's almost no gift that can build up the body of Christ quicker than the gift of encouragement. I remember when Carissa and I first moved to Tallahassee to replant the InterVarsity ministry at, at FSU and then it moved on to FAMU and TCC. When we first moved here, um, our group grew pretty fast and we were excited about that, but um, we, were, we were kind of a serious group. You know what I'm saying? Like we were a little bit too serious. And then God sent us this student with like a smile that could light up a city and she was such, she had such a gift of encouragement that it literally sort of changed the ethos of our whole community. It was a beautiful thing. It just kind of like moved us to the next stage. It was like, hallelujah, praise God for the gift of encouragement. Wow, you guys really heard that. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on. So next we see Peter, the proto-bishop. Peter's ministry, um, Peter, you know, Peter had a special connection back to Jesus, and that comes through, I think, in the details of this passage. So after he heals this one man, he, he tells him to rise up and make your bed, which is very Jesus, right? When he goes in to raise Tabitha, he tells the mourners, get out of here, get out of here. You clear the room, and he just wants to just pray for her alone. That's very Jesus, isn't it? But like a modern-day bishop, Peter wasn't tied at this point to a specific church. But instead, we see in this text, he's traveling between churches in different regions, as he does to Lydda in, verses 30, in verse 32, and Joppa in verse 38. And also, like a bishop, Peter had a crucial role in validating new ministries and missions and ministers in the church. So Barnabas knew that he had to get Peter on board when it came to Paul. So in Acts, I mean, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, which you heard read, or, uh, uh, we didn't hear chapter 2, but you heard a reading from Galatians 1, we actually sort of get the inside scoop, like, you know, um, the, the, the power of the lens is turned up a little bit from what we see in Acts 9.27. And we learn in Galatians 1 that it was ultimately Peter, who's also called Cephas, who had a special role in receiving Paul and acknowledging God's call in his life as a missionary to the Gentiles. So even though um, uh, Peter's ministry eventually gives way to Paul, as the, uh, he, you know, Paul becomes the main like, human protagonist in the book of Acts very soon, um, we'll continue to see the importance of this proto-bishop, Peter, in the chapters to come. 
And actually, I, I hope that you all will come in two weeks because we're actually going to receive a visit from our good bishop, uh, Neil Lavar, who's going to be preaching to us and speaking with us and hanging out with us. So I hope you'll be here in a couple of weeks to meet him if you haven't. All right, finally, um, we meet Tabitha, who is also called Dorcas. We'll go with Tabitha. Um, she, she's the woman of charity. Acts 9.36 says that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Tabitha was the kind of person who made clothes for widows in her spare time. So when somebody like Tabitha dies, the poor weep, and the church is like, we need to find our best miracle worker. Right? Because she's indispensable to us. Have you ever met a saint like Tabitha, always thinking of the poor, always using their spare time for others, always quick to mercy? I'm happy to say that I've met many disciples that remind me of Tabitha, and they deeply challenge me to show Christ's love to the least and to the last. Okay, so number one, all members of the church are saints. Number two, all saints are the same. Number three, more briefly, saints are meant to multiply. So when it comes to pa the, this passage in Acts chapter 9, it's clear that the church has been growing. And, and we don't know. It's like somehow it happened. There's disciples in Damascus and Lydda and Joppa. And Luke never even told us how they got there, right? It's like the church was like growing too fast and too wide to even keep up with in the narrative of Acts. And that growth continues. Look with me down at verse 31. This is another one of Luke's famous summary passages like, like Acts 2, 42 through 47 or Acts chapter 6, verse 7, there's about a half dozen of these so far. And every time Luke gives a summary, he always highlights how the mission of God is advancing. Here, here in verse 31, it's no different. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I just, I, I just got to pause. That's like such a beautiful paradox, isn't it? Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Multiplied. That's what Luke wants us to know. There it is. So the church is never meant to sort of like turn in on itself and say like, forget the lost and least. Let's just sort of like focus on our own members and like building up our own amenities. Right? That's not the church. That's a country club. But it's the Lord's will to advance his mission, whether that's through growth, through adding numbers, or through multiplication, through adding new churches, new congregations. And I, I'm glad to say that we've seen some growth since moving to this new location. I, I pray to the Lord for more. But some of you guys don't know this, but Incarnation is actually involved in the planting of a new congregation in Jensen Beach in South Florida. And uh, the person leading it is Sean Froling. He's a lay catechist, and, and his wife, Ashley. Um, he preached here sometime last year, and we've sort of been discerning this thing. And I've been meeting with them almost weekly um, for um, coaching and, and catechism and stuff like that. And so they're planting a new congregation. It's actually getting started next month. So please pray for them. It's going to be their first official meeting. I'm just excited that the church, that our church is, is part of multiplication in, this, in that way because it's always been a part of our vision from the beginning. And the scriptures teach that saints are meant to multiply. Amen? Amen. Number four, and most gloriously, saints are holy because they are united to Jesus. The church and Jesus are one. 
You know, our holiness doesn't come from ourselves. It, become, it comes because in, in Paul's most repeated phrase, we are in Christ. And in fact, um, the oneness between Jesus and his church is the first truth that Paul ever learned about Jesus. Do you realize that? Earlier on in Acts 9, right? You know, he sees this bright light and he falls down and he's blinded and, and, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul's like, what are you talking about? Who am I talking to? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? Maybe that's part of the reason why Paul likes to say in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's always talking about our union with Christ. That's the first truth about Jesus that he ever learned. But Jesus, I think, in our gospel lesson today from John 17, takes it a step further. So please turn with me there to John 17. This is deep stuff, so let's read this carefully. Starting at verse 20. And Jesus is praying to his Father... And he says that he's not only praying for the disciples of his day, in verse 20, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us, guys, right? Jesus is praying for us. We believe in Jesus through the word that's come down through these apostles to other people, to other people, to other people, all the way down through history to us. Jesus is praying for us. I take comfort in that. Pray for me, Jesus. And uh, it says, uh, what, what was his prayer? It says, um, that we all may be one. That's his prayer. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Oh, sorry, sorry. Back, uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right. I'm right. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> just as you are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe. Again, we see it's Jesus' multiplicative intention here. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So let's, let's kind of slow down. Let's like get this straight. So Jesus is praying for the unity of the church. And even more than that, that our oneness would be like the eternal unity between the Son of God and His Father. That's how we want to us, our, our unity to look, right? Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. And even more than that, that our oneness would be grounded in the fact that our lives are now forever united to the Father and the Son. Verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Okay, so like at this point, it's time to faint, or like write a poem, or like run a victory lap. I don't know what your personality is like, but... You can't just read that passage and just live your life the same. You can't believe that and live your life the same. Because if we're united to the eternal trinity, if our being is united to the being of Jesus Christ, you can't just like sort of believe that and just live the way that you used to live. So as a, as a way of wrapping up, let me, just, let me just give two brief examples, two ways that the early church understood that our unity... The unity of our being with the being of Jesus affected the way that they live. So first, our union in Christ affects the way that we treat Christian brothers and sisters who are poor. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did also to me. And likewise, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. But that's a radical application of our union with Christ, isn't it? But, but I think we see how it follows, doesn't it? It makes sense. Second, the early church believed that our union with Christ affects our sexual behavior. And at this point, the Corinthians asked Paul, you know, uh, uh, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, they asked Paul if they could sleep with prostitutes. And do you remember how he answered? He, appealed, he, he actually appealed to our oneness with Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. You see the way that the early church is working out this doctrine? And how it, how it impacts the way that they live in a practical way? In other words, because we're one spirit with Jesus... He's present and part of that equation in our life, even if we think it's private. It's no longer that way. It's no longer that way if we name the name of Jesus. It's not just our own thing. How drastically would it change our outlook and sexual behavior if we grasped our oneness with Christ the way that the early church did? How drastically different would our lives be if we lived into our true identity as saints, if we remember that all members of the church are saints, that not all saints look the same, that saints are meant to multiply, and that saints are holy because we're united to the Holy Son of God. Amen.